Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Uh, not actually a massive amount of televised professional prize fighting to look back upon uh, over this weekend. But as we record this on a Sunday afternoon, Eric, um, I'm getting pretty excited about it. Perhaps you are too. There's an opportunity later this evening to watch... A number of boxers compete in an altogether different setting. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm uh, fairly excited about it as well. The DVR is set uh, because, yeah, between the time we record this and when the people get to hear it, uh, a historic television event will have aired. <laughs> Celebrity Family Feud with Boxers. Uh, the team names are the Maulers and the Brawlers, although <laughs> many of the participants are neither Maulers nor Brawlers. Uh, but I suppose Slicksters and Technicians, you know, I don't, I don't <laughs> think those team names would have had as much mainstream appeal. Uh, but yeah, the likes of Andre Ward, James Tony, Danny Garcia, Michaela Mayer, uh, and uh, quite a few others are competing. And in all our years of knowing each other, Kieran, I don't feel like we've ever really uh, gone too in-depth and had much of a conversation about game shows. Uh, so uh, I'm curious, is there a particular game show that you've thought about the, you know, uh, the, that you'd be good at or have thought about uh, trying out for, anything like that? It's odd that we wouldn't have discussed that. We must have exhausted just about every other topic. People should listen to the <laughs> nonsense we talk about before we even start recording. Yes. Um, I don't know. You know what? Uh, I feel a little bit like uh, David Greisman has kind of cornered the market there on yeah. boxing reporters, uh, a colleague of ours who was a one-time Jeopardy champ. Mm-hmm. Um, but so I, was, I don't know. Is who wants to be a couch-sitting, beer-drinking TV watcher a game show yet? Because I'd be great at that. <laughs> Um, I, ha- I haven't heard about that being in production. It's on, but... it's on, it's on some network somewhere on Netflix or something, probably. But, probably. Uh, oh, actually, no, no, I know what it is. American Idol. <laughs> American Idol. That's Idol as in I-D-L-E. Oh, okay. All right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you'd my, be good entry, on that. my entry would be a time-lapse video of my porch remaining unpainted all summer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I would be the grand champion for that. Yes, you would definitely get the golden ticket to go to Hollywood uh, if, that's right. if that's what it took to qualify. Uh, yeah, mm. scrape, scrape the first layer off, even put the tape down, but nah, it's, the rest of it's just going too far. Okay. So, yeah. so I guess you don't actually have a real game show that you've ever really sat there thinking about, you know, I'd be good at that. I, I kind of want to try out for that. That's not, a, that's not your have. thing. Have you? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, there's one. My, my game is Wheel of Fortune. I, uh, ah, yeah. I, I sit there and solve almost every puzzle long before the contestants do, although I realize they're distracted by the studio audience and thinking about spinning and all that and thinking about what letters to use and all that. It's a little easier from home, but, uh, but I, I am pretty dominant from my couch on wheel of fortune. And I made a half-assed effort to get on once I filled out the application online and I filmed the little submission video, but I wasn't persistent about it. I just tried the once. And then instead of trying again, I stewed over the nerve of them not to pursue me. How dare they not call me back? Really? Uh, well, exactly. Yeah. If they're going to be like that, you don't want to be on their exactly. show. Exactly. That's right. Um, right. And if they did get back to me, what's the line about uh, I wouldn't join any club that would <laughs> right. have me? Something like that. Exactly. So, yeah. But for what it's worth, I do believe I would be an elite Wheel of Fortune player if I ever ah, got a chance. I've played Wheel of Fortune slots. <laughs> yeah, not the same. Not the not same? The same. Oh. No. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Oh, that's five minutes used up. Right. Let's uh, <laughs> let's move on to boxing, shall we? Um, yes. uh, there has actually been a lot of 
stuff going on in the wider world of boxing. So we do actually have quite a lot to cover on this. You wouldn't believe it after listening for the last few minutes, but we do. <laughs> um, we do in a serious vein. There is there is some tragic news that does need to be addressed, and we're going to get to that at the end of the show. But we do have fights to preview, not uh, very many. We do have fights to review, not very many, but we do have... Saturday night's Showtime Championship Boxing triple header to discuss, and that was headlined by an explosive statement win from Javante Tank Davis in his Baltimore homecoming, uh, coming off a first-round knockout of Hugo Ruiz in his previous fight and a third-round stoppage of Jesus Cuellar before that. Davis split the difference here with a second-round stoppage of Panama's Ricardo Nunez. Um, you know what? Here's a, here's a little game for us to play. It's the signature Showtime Boxing Podcast segment whenever a referee steps in to make uh, to stop the fight it's let's play is raskin feeling like a sadist this week <laughs> um good stoppage or a bad stoppage eric by referee harvey doc do you think little from column a a little from column b i think it was certainly an excusable stoppage but not to my eyes the ideal handling of the situation um i'll say this doc was correct to step in at that moment much better to stop it there than to do nothing. But I think the best call for the situation would have been to step in and rule that the ropes were holding Nunez up and call a knockdown. Right. Um, and really, right. there were there were two moments uh, in quick succession, uh, two punches that affected him in such a way that if he had yep. been in the center of the ring, Nunez would have gone down. But because he was against the ropes, he didn't. Um, it was Pauli Malinaji. Uh, right after the stoppage, used the word disappointed. Um, you know, not hating on the stoppage, but he was just disappointed because he wanted to see what Nunez could do if he could have come back. And I, I would agree with that. Um, so I won't call it a bad stoppage. I've seen much, much worse. Yeah. But, um, you know, acknowledging that it's tough to make perfect split-second decisions, uh, the perfect decision there by Doc would have been to call a knockdown give the eight count and see if Nunez could get back into the fight. So that's my take. What did you think of the stoppage? And prior to that, um, you know, the thing that stood out to me most was Gervonta's jab. It was, it was beautiful mm. in the opening round. What stood out to you about Tank's performance? Um, yeah, I was, you know, first of all, I was fine with the stoppage. I mean, you referenced those couple of punches and I think once you start seeing the head snap back, mm. um, that's, that's sort of a trigger, I think, and, and probably justifiably, um, you know, I agree, I agree with that assessment that you gave actually that in an ideal world, that would have been a, a decent call the call a knockdown and then see what happens. Um, but, but yeah, it's once it's different, I think, than when you're up against the ropes and you've got your hands up and how many punches you take. And once that head starts swiveling around on the neck there, I think that's that's a that's a trigger. And, and yeah, you know, better, better safe than sorry in that respect. Um, uh, as for Javante, well, what impressed me about him pretty much everything on this night, actually, I, I just thought it was a, just a tremendous performance. Um, I, you know, it was interesting, like what started the problem there for Nunez was he. He kind of got a little – he lost focus a little bit there. You could see that he, he just wasn't focused on Davis when he was in that clinch. Like he was looking off, looking a little bit smug. But in contrast, Javante's intensity was really was really high, I thought, from the very beginning, and it remained so. And I, I was impressed that for as short a time as the fight went on, he was able to show so many different things. I mean, like you said, especially in that first round, he was really working hard behind that stiff jab and then really following up with some very good power punches, especially to the body. Mm. Um, and, and he was, you know, he was very much controlling the range. And then it looked as if in the second round, initially the fight was more at Nunes's range, but Davis was letting him do that. He then just, he clearly, you know, he kept him 
at a distance with that jab in the first round and then decided he was gonna he was gonna get in closer and 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 wear him down and um what i really liked was once he decided to fight Nunez in close, I loved his upper body movement when he was in close. That mm. was, uh, it was really nice. He was sort of daring Nunez to hit him and there was just slipping some of those and then making sure that he was in position to land those really nice short um, uh, power punches. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I was impressed with, uh, with just about everything that Javante did in the short period of time that we got to see him. Um, and, and really, so I guess that makes both of us. Uh, yeah. So here's a bit of a question that I think probably not many had been considering going into this fight. I don't know how many folks were considering it afterwards, but I wonder if it's time to start pondering this. So is it time, you know, we talked about a, he's had a KO1, he's had a KO3, he's had a KO2. Um, is it now time to start considering Javante for pound for pound lists? Uh and the ESPN poll, none of the people who, who contribute to that poll, including yourself, uh, has Javante in their top 10. Um, can you give us a sneak peek? <laughs> Next time there is one, is there going to be at least one person maybe putting Javante in the lower level of that top 10? Or do you think it's just too early? Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see him get a vote or two down around the number 9 or number 10 spot. But uh, yeah, to, to give a sneak peek or a full-on spoiler, uh, he won't be cracking my list yet. Um, but not because he isn't a pound-for-pound talent. Uh, he sure looked on Saturday night like yep. a guy with a case that he might just be among the 10 best fighters on the planet right now. I just need him to prove it against an elite or near-elite opponent yeah. first. Jose Pedraza is definitely the best guy he's fought. That kind of remains his only really meaningful win. Once he beats someone in the pound-for-pound pound, top 40 or 50 or so, which he hasn't done yet, if he looks anywhere near this good doing it, then I think I could find room for Davis on my pound-for-pound pound list. And, you know, he, he's only 24. So if I had to guess, I'd say by this time next year, I think he'll be in my top 10. Um, that's I, I think he's really getting close. He just needs to beat one A-level opponent. Uh, speaking yeah. of which, uh, Gervonta called out Tevin Farmer and Leo Santa Cruz after the fight. I consider both of those guys A-level. Uh, Farmer won a fight of his own on Saturday night in Arlington, Texas. A 12-round decision win over Guillaume Frenois. Uh, like I said uh, last week, yeah, it. you know, I'm, I might never get a ch another chance now to say Guillaume Frenois. So I'm saying all the Guillaume Frenois that I can uh, while I can. Anyway, uh, I would love to see Gervonta versus Farmer as soon as possible if the two factions can come together. Uh, I think Gervonta would be the favorite, but it's a great test for him. We'd learn a lot about both guys. What do you think of that potential fight, Kieran? And is there anyone else you, you'd rather see Davis fight first? Yeah, look, it's the ideal fight to be made, isn't it? And not only because they're perhaps the top two in that division, but also because it's a natural rivalry. Um, as you sort of mentioned, uh, he, he called Farmer out, and they've been calling each other out for a while. Mm -hmm. Both guys are good talkers. They've been going back and forth on social media already. It's Philly against Baltimore, which is great. A battle yep. of, you know, two gritty blue-collar cities. Um, I would like to see that fight. And I would like to see it sooner rather than later. And, and to sort of – and part of the reason is um, sort of following a little bit from your comment about Javante's level of opposition. I'm a little worried that 
Davis might start losing a little off his fastball if he doesn't have the opportunity to test himself against better opposition soon. Um, You know, I mean, he's doing he's taking care of business extremely well, but... You know, like like you said, probably not really against the level of opposition. Probably even he would like to fight. Um, I'm not holding my breath at the prospects of Farmer being next. Uh, Santa Cruz is easier to make. Santa Cruz, um, PBC fighter these days, and he's responded to Davis's callouts. Um, he said that he'd you know walk down and wear out Davis. Uh, obviously, Santa Cruz would be a smaller guy. He's been campaigning at featherweight and. Davis is big for a 130 pounder, as we talked about last week, that you're never quite sure if he's going to make the weight limit or not. Um, but, you know, he has the strength and the skill and the following. That that would be a very watchable contest. Um, who do I expect to be next, however? Well, I wonder if it might be Andrew Cancio. Um, you and I hate Alphabet <laughs> organizations. Fighters often love them. And one particular Alphabet organization has managed to have both Javante Davis and Andrew Cancio holding belts. Um, Maybe that would be something that might be mandated. I don't know. Um, Yeah, I've seen, I saw a little bit of speculation uh, today that even though they both have belts from the same alphabet group in the same division, that it's uh, some, some inside information was that there is no move to, by that organization to bring the two of them together. So it's almost <laughs> as if these rules are pernicious and it's right. It's and, and it's almost like having two guys with belts means two sanctioning fees. So why ever unify them? Yeah. Weird. That can't possibly be the reason though. No. So I'm sure there's something else going on. Um, I wonder also if we did see Davis's next opponent in action on Saturday mm. um, in the co-feature. Yuri Orkis Gamboa walking right through Rocky Martinez, dropping him twice en route to a second round KO. Um, I said in the preview that I thought Martinez was shot and he made me look pretty prescient, I think, candidly. I rewatched that fight on Sunday morning. It was easy to rewatch both the fights. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, while the coffee was brewing. Um, and I rewatched it and I was focusing on Rocky. And, and looking at it a second time, I realized just how little he did. I mean, he barely threw anything, landed next to nothing, didn't have great movement, um, had no resistance to Gamboa's punches, really. The only reason in our preview that I didn't pick an early KO win was I wasn't sure what Gamboa still had left. Well, it certainly looks like he had quite a bit. Um, so do you come away feeling like he does have a lot left, Eurokis Gamboa? Or was it just, or do you agree with me that Rocky was just there to be hit and maybe perhaps anyone would have looked good against him on Saturday night? Yeah, I mean, whatever the reason, uh, Gamboa definitely did look good. I mean, way better yeah. than I thought he was going to. He looked like yeah. the prime Gamboa of eight or ten years ago. Um I do think that had a lot to do with Rocky Martinez. The guy just can't get out of the way of a fast punch anymore. Um, (laughs) But still, Gamboa looked sharp and strong. His combinations were explosive from the start. If the goal was to take this guy with a recognizable name and make him look like a credible challenger for Javante Davis, mission accomplished. Uh, they, They got exactly what they wanted out of this fight, if indeed, as you say, that might be what's coming up next uh yeah not, not sure what else to say about gamboa just seems to have uh, turned back the clock a little bit with this one yeah. um so we we got our two uh, second round knockouts there that were easily rewatchable uh the the morning after uh the opening bout on the card was not a second round knockout this one went the full 10 uh ladarius miller winning a split decision over jezreel corrales 
I don't know about you, but I thought this was a trash decision, Kieran. Uh, to, oh. my, to my eyes, Jezreel Corrales won that fight, and it wasn't all that close. Uh, he was slightly quicker, slightly busier, slightly more aggressive. His movement and his awkwardness and his unpredictability kept Miller from getting comfortable. I thought he was in control almost the whole way. Um, there were some close rounds, certainly, but... Not enough, in my view, to have Miller ahead. Definitely not enough to get to Larry Hazard Jr.'s 96-93 score for Miller. Uh, and on top of the crappy judging, uh, there was crappy refereeing. Uh, Corrales uh, lost a point for total BS reasons in the final round, and that kept it from being a draw, which still would have been a bad decision in my view, but it's better than a loss. Um, and also, as long as I'm complaining about things, there's one minute to go in the fight, ref, maybe let the loose tape on his gloves just flap around a little. Right. You know, once one fighter gets injured by loose tape, I will change my stance on this. But until then, fix it after the round, not during the round. Or in this case, just let the fight end. We're almost at the end of the fight. Um, 61% of people polled on Twitter thought Corrales won. Uh, I'm one of those. I had it 97 to 92. Uh, To me, this was not a close enough fight to give it to the other guy. Um, how did you see this fight, Kieran? Uh, am I alone in getting all worked up about this? I certainly don't have as strong opinions about it as you. That's for sure. I do. The one thing that I do have a particularly strong opinion about was that point deduction, which, um, apart from being absurdly officious, penalized entirely the wrong guy. Um, <laughs> right. uh, so, um, so the scores were sort of all over the place. Um, but from my perspective, I have a hard time arguing that any of them were wrong i i had a harder time than you selecting a winner in a lot of those rounds uh i thought it was a difficult fight to watch a difficult fight to score and uh, for me neither man was really necessarily doing enough to clearly separate himself um you know i i, I was watching it as i scored it i guess i i actually did kind of slightly score it for miller but to be fair by that stage, I was watching it with all and scoring it with all the vigor of a contestant on Who Wants to Be a Couch Sitting Beer Drinking TV <laughs> Watcher. Um, and so, you know, once you take my scorecard with a, you know, the requisite amount of salt as a consequence. But um, yeah, so no, I, I didn't have as strong opinion about it as you did, except for the tenth round shenanigans there. Um, well, your scoring you sucks. You're part of the problem, Kieran. Well, I would be if I was drinking beer while I was actually officially scoring it on the ring apron. That would undoubtedly be an issue. <laughs> okay. And in Texas, I'd probably get away with it. <laughs> you would get more assignments. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, anyway, whatever we think about it, a split decision win is the official verdict. Yep. And so for those keeping score at home, and I'm sure lots of you are, um, uh, we both got uh, all three winners and methods of victory correct in our predictions last week. No bonus points for exact rounds of knockouts or for nailing the split decision. So we got two points apiece for each fight. And you still lead 58-52. Just where I want you. (laughs) It's going to be December 31st. You're going to be down by six points, and you're still going to be talking about having me right where you want me. Yeah, well, it's a big big fight card in uh, Japan always, uh, New Year's (laughs) Eve. There usually is, yes. Yeah. Yeah, not, yeah. not usually with Showtime televising, however. Anything can happen. Anything can happen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, the other notable fight card of the weekend was on the zone in Arlington, Texas. We already mentioned Tevin Farmer's win. Oh, who is that against? <laughs> I Eric, believe it was. Yeah. Um, what's his name? Ah, yes. Guillaume Frenwall. Ah, that's it. 
Uh, not a whole lot more to say about that fight, but the main event is definitely worth a discussion. Uh, in a 140-pound partial unification bout, Jose Ramirez scored a sixth-round stoppage of Maurice Hooker and what had been a close, competitive, entertaining fight until Ramirez exploded um, with a left hook, followed up and got the win. I thought this was a fabulous prize fight for as long as it lasted. Um, mm-hmm. Ramirez really pushed the action, uh, turned it into the kind of fight that he wanted, but... Hooker, you know, absolutely returned the favor in uh, in bucketfuls there, uh, giving as good as he got with some really superb, accurate, uh, straight counterpunching pace. But, you know, then there was just that fraction of a second when Hooker, you know, by his own admission afterwards, just kind of lost focus for just a fraction of a second. Ramirez caught him with that left hand and then batted him into the ropes and prompted the stoppage. Uh, Naturally, I again have to ask you what you thought of this stoppage. Um... And also, where does Ramirez fit into this division? It's, kind of, it's looking pretty lively now, that 140-pound division. And do you think Ramirez is the top guy or near the top? So I'll uh, answer your question about the stoppage first. This was a great stoppage, I thought. Mark Nelson really nailed it. Ramirez landed that hook that, that stunned Hooker, uh, proving that it's not always a bad idea to hook with a hooker. Uh, yes, yeah. Yeah. You knew something like that was coming. <laughs> um, after he had him hurt, he threw 10 follow-up punches, all 10 landed, and eight or nine of them landed clean. Uh, so, yeah, Nelson jumped in at the perfect time. Is he the top guy at 140? I lean toward Regis Progre probably having the most ability, um, but I think after Progre takes on Taylor, unless that turns out to be a draw, I would say Ramirez has grabbed himself a spot in the top two. Um This was impressive. Ramirez is a guy who's been moved really well. Shout out to Carl Moretti for the job he's done there. They're making all the right moves and he keeps getting better. So I wouldn't be surprised in the least if he ultimately emerges as the man at 140. Uh, But for now, I lean pro gray. Um, Mm. But outside the conversation of who's king at 140, there's also talk now that top rank may have just found themselves a marketable opponent on their side of the street for Terence Crawford. Uh, could you see that fight happening, Crawford versus Ramirez? Interesting. I hadn't actually thought about that as as a possibility. Um, I actually, at some point, and I'm sure it wouldn't be next, notwithstanding the definitive ending, wouldn't wouldn't hate seeing Ramirez rematch Hooker because that was a terrific fight. Sure. Um, uh, you know, uh, Ramirez went over to zone to fight on a matchroom card. You know, maybe Hooker could return the favor. Um, you know, it's interesting. Well, I mean, if I'm Ramirez, I'm probably more interested in fighting that pro gray Taylor winner, um, whoever that emerges, if that's possible, rather than thinking about Terrence Crawford. Um, and I wonder also, you know, top ranks probably looking at the situation thinking, well, we've got one of the very best 140 pounders. Probably the best 147-pounder, although some people would dispute that and say it's Errol Spence. Um, That's a pretty good position to be in. Do we want to knock one of them off? Um, I'm not sure right now that there'd be enough money in it for that to be, you know, worth the risk for all involved. But let's say, hypothetically speaking, Progre beats Taylor or vice versa, and then Ramirez beats the winner of that fight right. and is suddenly the, the uh, clearly the guy at 140, then that's a fight that they could absolutely make and might be worth making. Um, also, I'm sure a consideration at some point for top rank is that there's all these other welterweight matchups are being made on the other side of the street. Uh, Bud Crawford is going to be agitating if he isn't yes. already for a big fight. Um, yep. And this might be the easiest big fight or the easiest thing that's close to a big fight for top rank to make for him right now. 
Yeah, that that's exactly the the, the point that I, I thought you might get around to there. That it, it just are if they kind of run out of ideas for for who to match yeah. Bud Crawford against, that might uh, hurry Ramirez into that sort of a fight. And uh, certainly, as Ramirez keeps fighting and keeps winning, keeps winning and keeps looking uh, better every time out, uh, that that fight does get more and more attractive to uh, to the viewers as well. So. Uh, we'll see. Um, so those are all the fights from this past weekend. Let's look ahead to next weekend's fights. And there's really nothing major on the schedule, but there are a few B-level fights worth talking about. The most significant card, uh, at least in the U.S., but maybe globally as well, takes place at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn on Saturday, August 3rd, with Fox televising heavyweights in the main event. Adam Konaki versus Chris Ariola. Uh, we also have Marcus Brown versus Jean Pascal. Uh, Brown dealing with outside the ring legal issues. Pascal, frankly, dealing with inside the ring issues. <laughs> He's 36, and I think I speak for a lot of people when I say I'd rather not see him still fighting, especially yeah, against yeah. a young world-class fighter like Brown. Uh, Andre Berto is also on the card, as is Curtis Stevens. I can really do without a lot of this undercard, but the main event could potentially be fun if Ariola has enough left to push Kanaki. Uh, do you think that the heavyweight bout will be competitive, Kieran? And do you disagree with me about anything on the undercard? So I don't, it's, I don't know if that heavyweight bout is going to be competitive. It's, it's, it, I'm not sure that it will be. Uh, I mean, the first thing is, you know, like both guys are pretty easy to root for, especially Ariola, who's always sort of, you know, been like the the real sort of honest, give his ultimate effort and get the most out of his ability kind of a guy, and it's always made him very popular. Um, you know, he, his popularity in a way has sort of exceeded his accomplishments, but his accomplishments aren't too bad actually. I mean, I think he's fought for what it's worth three times for an alphabet belt, and two of those against legit badasses in the form of Vitaly Klitschko and Deontay Wilder. Um, his other three career losses, twice to Berman Stavern, who was actually pretty legit then until Wilder wrecked him, and to Thomas Adamek. So he's fallen short against opposition that's better than any of the opposition that Konaki's faced, I think. Um, right. And, you know, the, his biggest wins have been, you know, Charles Martin, Gerald Washington, that kind of level. But um, Chris Ariola might be at that Gerald, Charles Martin, Gerald Washington leveled now, um, you know, so and the, and the Washington win looks a little bit better uh, after uh, Washington's KO of Robert Hellenius. Um, so and I do worry a bit with Ariola that he has taken some pretty heavy losses. He's gotten badly beaten up in a couple of those losses. Um, yeah. uh, and that's that's just going to add up. Uh, so I, I don't know that he needs to be going up against the young who's kind of rising through the ranks like like Kanaki is. I mean, we'll, he'll give an honest effort, but uh, we'll see how competitive it is. Um, and, and as for the undercard, well, look, yeah, look, I kind of agree with you there. I, I don't know that Andre Berto needs to still be fighting. Uh, I totally agree with you about Jean Pascal. And then the other thing with Marcus Brown, uh, he was recently busted, I think, for the fourth yeah. complaint against the same woman who's the mother of his daughter in the last 18 months. Um uh, this one wasn't an assault, but it stems from previous ones. You know, he barged into the woman's home, refused to leave. Um, I mean, there's no way, like, for example, an NFL team would keep suiting up a guy who was doing right. this time after time after time. And this is, you know, another example of why boxing is kind of the sewer of professional sports, to be perfectly <laughs> yeah. honest with you. You know, yeah. so that's kind of what I think about that. Um, the rest of the sort of notable action 
this coming weekend takes place uh, over there in Foreign World. Um, there's uh, Mickey Cannon against replacement opponent Diego Alberto Ruiz in Belfast. Uh, uh, ESPN Plus is streaming that card in the, in Liverpool on Friday. Junior middleweight. <laughs> is that the way that the, the Liverpoolians pronounce it? Liverpool, yeah. Okay. Uh, junior middleweight's headline at his own show. Uh, Anthony Fowler against Brian Rose atop that card. And in Bangkok, Thailand, I am not going to attempt to do a Bangkok accent um, <laughs> on Friday. Uh, one of the top strawweights in the world. And this is one of those moments where we just say a silent thanks for Thai boxing naming traditions. Yes. Knockout CP Freshmark defends an <laughs> alphabet belt against RR Andales. Uh, Eric, I know you've said to me many a time, we may not have talked about game shows before, but you've said to me many a time, Kieran, I'm looking forward to the time when I can provide some in-depth analysis of Knockout CP Freshmark's next title <laughs> defense. The floor, sir, is yours. Yes, uh, indeed. If you, if you don't mind, I'd like to now perform a 15-minute monologue breaking down the X's and O's. Oh, I don't mind at all. I'm still going to There we go. Some of the people listening might mind. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, I guess I have very little to say about really any of this. Um, we talked a few weeks ago about the teeny tiny disappointment that Conlon doesn't get to try to avenge his controversial loss in the Olympics. So be it. Uh, knockout CP Freshmart versus RR Andales is one of the elite matchups this year in terms of names I like to say out loud. Um, but beyond that yeah i don't know too much about these guys to be honest with you uh i do know uh andales is 19 years old uh born in september of 1999 so we're oh. getting scarily close to covering <laughs> boxers who were born in the 2000s that's a sobering thought um but that's about all i've got uh, august is traditionally a slow month in boxing no real must-see fights next weekend so Spend some time interacting with fellow humans, gardening, what? exercising, doing charity work, whatever. I, uh, I always recommend that people watch <laughs> boxing responsibly and in moderation. Uh, August will be a great time to uh, do some other things. <laughs> you know who does have, I'll wager, a strong opinion about knockout CP Fresh Martin R.R. Andalez? Guillaume Frenois. <laughs> yes, Guillaume Frenois probably does. Probably does. Better be ringside, even. <laughs> you know what? Uh, now that you mention it, if if Guillaume Frenois is an expert on these fighters, I mean, we can have him on the podcast next week to help us uh, break down that fight after the fact. We're going right. to have to talk about something. And we begin every question with, so, Guillaume Frenois. Yes. <laughs> what does Guillaume Frenois think about this? So anyway, that fight preview segment was brief, if not as brief as it could have been. <laughs> um, but the new segment will not be lots to talk about here. Um, we were getting ready to tap out by about Wednesday, like, stop making news, boxing people. <laughs> right. Um, so let's start with the two biggest names, amazingly still, after all these years in the sport, Manny Pacquiao and Floyd Mayweather. Uh, gosh, we talked last week through clenched teeth about how much sense this rematch makes. Um, I was went back to my Catholic roots and said a few Hail Marys and clutched my rosary beads as penance <laughs> for even bringing it up. But uh, plenty of other people have talked about it. Um, and this week, the build to a theoretical uh, uh, rematch continued on social media. Floyd wrote on Instagram, among other jabs, that, quote, this man's entire legacy and career has been built off its association with my name, Manny or perhaps somebody close to him, <laughs> responded on Twitter, you come to my fight and then use my name in a post, but I'm the one that is trying to stay relevant. If you want to be relevant again, hashtag Maypack2. <coughs> Fred Sternberg. And Mayweather <laughs> shot back. I was only at your fight supervising you, my employee, as 
any real boss, capital letters, would do. And that's always been Floyd's go-to insult for Manny. I mean, you know, apart from when he's just openly racist and his insult for Manny. <laughs> Right. Um, <laughs> you know, when, when in the build-up to their <sighs> first fight, um, when, when Pacquiao <laughs> fought for top rank, you know, the fact that Pacquiao had a boss, Bob Arum, and Mayweather was his own boss, and of course... As with most of Mayweather's boats and, ta- boats and taunts, that came down to money, as in Mayweather didn't have to share any of his. Um, that's what he, what he kept going back to, and he's going back there again. Anyway, is this all just fun and games? And two people who are just making sure that they keep their names in the headlines? Or do you think that they might actually both be a little bit interested in making this fight happen? Uh, it can be both. Uh, you know, they, they, they can yeah. be using each other's names to build themselves up and, and get attention uh, because if the years 2009 to 2015 taught them anything, it's that <laughs> that works. Um, yes. But they can also at the same time be thinking about fighting each other. Uh, I think Manny is all in on it. Uh, no doubt. He wants the money. He wants the chance to avenge the loss. He's basically calling him out when he says, if you want to be relevant again, may pack two, uh, or Fred Sternberg is calling him out on his behalf. <laughs> um, what's Floyd's end game here? That I don't know. Yeah. Um, I think he loves the spotlight. He craves attention, as evidenced by that eye-popping Sergeant Pepper-style jacket he was wearing in Baltimore <laughs> this weekend. Um, look, he has to know that at some point he won't be able to do this anymore yeah. physically. But... He's 42. He's still theoretically capable. Maybe he thinks he can still do it, wants to see what he can do, wants to make the money and take the fight. Um, It's just a question of whether that's all worth the risk of losing the zero. You know, you've come this far. You've spent 20 plus years carrying that zero around. You fight again. There's a chance you blow that. So uh, Floyd could be anywhere on the spectrum from... My mind is made up. I have no actual interest in this fight. I'm just talking. Uh, all the way to my mind is made up. I'm doing this. Uh, this this fight is getting done. Or And, and any point in between there. Uh, I have no clue. Nothing he said in his tweets uh, or his Instagram posts or, or where, whatever, whichever social media outlet he was using. Nothing indicated that he wants the fight. Um, so until I see a sign otherwise, if I have to guess... I'm saying that it's not happening and he's just chasing the attention, but that's just a guess. I think that's where I am too, actually. I think yeah. that probably is the case. That zero is worth, at the end of his record, is worth more to him even than all the multiple zeros he has after <laughs> commerce in his, in his bank account, I think, right. really. And one is kind of dependent on the other, I think, in his mind. So, yeah, I think I agree with you there. Okay. Well, as long as we're talking about the biggest names in the sport, uh, let's next talk about Canelo Alvarez. Uh, This is all subject to change between the time we record this on Sunday early evening and when you hear it. But since we last left this soap opera, Canelo apparently reopened negotiations with Sergei Kovalev, but it still didn't get done. Uh, So Kovalev is back to being on track to fight Anthony Yardy on August 24th. Uh, And Canelo then began negotiating with Sergei Derevyanchenko, one of his alphabet mandatories. Uh, And that fight might be getting close for an October date with uh, DAZN reportedly okay with it if Canelo agrees to fight Triple G next. Nothing against Derevyanchenko, good solid fighter, but mm-hmm. that fight does nothing for me. It's just very ho-hum. Uh, do you like it any more than I do? And do you expect that it will indeed be Derevyanchenko whom Canelo fights in the fall? Um, no, I'm, I'm with you there. Look, uh, Derevyanchenko is a very good fighter. 
Um, but we've already seen that although he's able to push Daniel Jacobs hard, he wasn't able to overcome him. And mm-hmm. so there's absolutely no reason to think he'll be able to perform any better against Canelo Alvarez. Uh, actually, it's very rare that one says this about Canelo, who is really consistently you know, taken on very, very tough challenges. But of the four opponents who've been mooted for him, Derevianchenko is probably the most disappointing. I mean, obviously, we all wanted it to be Gennady Golovkin, but for assorted reasons we've we've discussed the last couple of weeks, that's not happening yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he was going to stiff Golovkin, then doing so for Sergei Kovalev would have been exciting and daring. Yep. Um, but that, as you mentioned, that doesn't look to be happening. Uh, honestly, even Jaime Munguia would have been sort of interesting, even though you'd make Canelo a big, big, big favorite because Munguia is such a big and strong and unconventional guy and we haven't seen him fight at, at that level um you know now it seems as if Golovkin will be the one facing Mungia if, if you know what we've been hearing is right um uh and yeah based on the noises we're, we're hearing with purse bids being delayed and negotiations taking place and a deadline for Friday being extended to Monday it does kind of seem as if the conversation with Derevianchenko is is serious and it does seem like he will be next and like you said by the time people listen to this they'll probably know more than we know at this time it (laughs) sounds like it might be one way or the other that monday will be a uh, reveal the truth um all right so someday mayweather and pacquiao and canelo indeed will all be enshrined in the international boxing hall of fame in canistota and the timetables on their respective inductions might have been sped up this week. Uh, the hall announced changes to its induction rules while also creating two new categories. I guess it's a little bit complicated, but um, we'll try to keep it as simple as we can. Uh, so first, the two new categories. They're both for women. There's a modern category for fighters whose last bout came no earlier than 1989 and a trailblazer category for those who had done fighting by 1988. Um, The Hall of Fame has not yet indicated how many inductees there'll be per year in either of those categories, but the changes in the existing categories now. So instead of needing to be retired five years, which has been the case up until now, point uh, up until now, you now only need to be retired three years. Um, So as long as you are retired by the end of 2016, you're eligible to be on next year's ballot, which means a potentially quite loaded one coming up. Um, And the requirement for induction has also been changed. So how it has been in the past is irrespective of how many votes everybody got, the top three would always get in and only the top three. Right. Um, now it's the top three plus anyone else who gets over 80% of votes, uh, meaning in a loaded year with five or six slam dunk candidates, they could all get in. So that's a lot to digest. What are your thoughts? Um, let's start with the women. Um I'm not sure how many pre-1989 female boxers really belong in the Hall of Fame. Um, I know there were female boxers before then, but the fact that I can't name any off the top of my head makes me question how Hall of Fame worthy any Mm. of them are. Um, But definitely it makes sense to have a few modern female fighters in there. Christy Martin, Layla Mm -hmm. Ali. It's not a long list, but I believe it's right to start up that category and maybe it's one inductee per year for a little while, or maybe it's up to one, maybe zero certain years if nobody gets past a certain voting threshold. Um, I'm glad to see them looking to induct uh, some of the the women who have really risen to the top of uh, that side of the sport. As for changing from five years to three, I don't really see the point. I I like having some time to build perspective on a fighter's career before he becomes eligible, not to mention... 
three years isn't really enough time to be sure someone is retired. Exactly. Uh, exactly. You know, the ones who get inducted after five years and then fight again, like Sugar Ray Leonard did, uh, those are rare. Um, but three years, I don't know how that it'll be so rare, rare. Three years isn't really proof of a retirement in boxing, sadly. Um, and then there's the issue of the logjam for the next couple of years, which I thought at first blush was something to be very concerned about. But on closer inspection, it won't be that bad. Uh, this year, uh, we'll have anyone held over on the ballot from the previous year, including one very worthy fighter, in my opinion, Rafael Marquez. He's held mm-hmm. over, didn't get in last year. Um, and then you also have anyone who fought for the last time in 2014, 2015, or 2016. So that covers, and I hope I haven't forgotten anyone, but uh, in terms of uh, really strong candidates, that covers Juan Manuel Marquez, Bernard Hopkins, Shane Mosley, Timothy Bradley, and Sergio Martinez. I thought it would be worse um, that there would be more than that, but a few of the guys, um, I remember, I guess it was in 2016, we were having some conversations on our old podcast about uh, how there were just going to be too many guys on the ballot right. that year, but some of those guys, like Roy Jones, Miguel Cotto, James Tony, who we thought might be wrapping up in 2016, didn't. Um, so they, so they won't be on this first ballot. So the number of names there, it's still kind of a lot, but, um, it's not an overwhelming number. So, so that's not a big issue to me after all. Um, but the new way of determining who gets in, I think Ed Brophy and the folks at the hall of fame, their hearts are in the right place, but I think they missed the mark. I, I like having a percentage threshold. That's good. Yeah. I don't like the three fighter minimum. If they had asked me, I would have said, make it a minimum of two, a maximum of four. You know, I don't think there's any need to go crazy and put five or six people in a single year. You can carry some over to next year. Um, But it's the two highest vote getters every year, no matter what, plus up to two more who are over 80%. I I think that would have been a, a good change. I think the biggest problem has been forcing in three a year we, we've yeah. gotten some really borderline hall of famers certain years um yeah I, I feel like i could go even deeper on this and break it down for you know half an hour or so i don't want to do that i should probably cut it off here but um just the the basic my basic view is that the problem w- was not that worthy hall of famers were being deprived and if they were it was some of the smaller foreign fighters who younger voters don't really know and, and aren't giving full credit to. Um, but anyway, I, I like the willingness to change from Ed Brophy in the Hall of Fame. I like that. I do not, however, agree with the specific changes they've made. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. One of the, the notes that I made was I like the fact that um, they are looking at, at the process and they're not necessarily standing still. Um, yeah. I, I agree with you that... Uh, you know, other halls, as I understand it, just do the percentage thing, right? Like you've got to, like baseball. I know you've baseball got to get Baseball does. It, it varies from hall to hall, but baseball, okay. yes, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think you know sometimes it, it can be really tough for a for a guy to get in. I was a big Mike Messina fan, and I can't believe that it took him this long to get into the Hall of Fame, but eventually he did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I some I do agree that I think it would be better to have them be able to like just go over a threshold. Uh, but I also get why they don't do it because induction weekend is everything for the hall, and mm. it's not as big as it is for as the baseball hall is, obviously. And they want to make sure that they have new inductees to make that weekend something special, and for people to want to go to it. And 
you know, to be a part of the parade through town, um, which isn't only new inductees, of course, but but it's kind of an important part of that. So so I, I understand from that perspective why they're doing it from a integrity of who is or is not in the whole perspective. I'm absolutely with you in that I, I would much prefer, um, you know, that they just did the percentage thing. This does, I think that was the, the one year... When we were talking about this, you mentioned that Kodo then didn't return in 2016, but he did in 2017. And then I right. think we, we ended up with then another potential logjam. If I'm right, I think, was it Vladimir and Andre and Kodo yeah, that's... and Floyd? Was it somebody was going to get missed out? I've forgotten who it was. but Yeah, that sounds right. And and I now I can't remember off the top of my head whether Roy end, ended up fighting in 2018 or twenty whether 2017 was his also. last year. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, you're right that there are... Uh, a series of log jams coming, it seems. Yeah. So it will at least get, because it would have been ridiculous to have had, and we had this conversation on the last podcast, a Hall of Fame class for which, say, Miguel Cotto was eligible that he didn't get into. So it does, this does at least get past that, but so would if it were just a, uh, a percentage. So, yeah, probably more important to us than, than, you know, some of the other folks who are listening who are fans. But, uh, yeah, from a Hall Integrity perspective. I agree with you, but I do like the fact that Ed is just looking at new options. Yeah. Okay, it's time now to shift to the negative side of the news, and we'll ease our way in uh, with British heavyweight Dillian White's failed drug test. We talked last week about his uh, solid 12-round decision win over Oscar Rivas. It turns out, as first reported by Thomas Hauser, that the result of a pre-fight drug test came back positive for the banned steroid Dianabol in White's A sample, and there's no word yet on his B sample. Some of the details are still a bit fuzzy. In fact, a lot of the details are, are a bit fuzzy. Uh, White is proclaiming his innocence. Um, the basic gist is that tests were failed, albeit only trace amounts reportedly. Right. The British Boxing Board of Control let him fight anyway. They had a meeting and then decided it was fine. He could go ahead. And Rivas's camp was never informed of the failed PED test especially in light of the recent in-ring tragedies that we'll be discussing shortly. This is, at best, lazy and irresponsible and greedy on the part of some people who wanted to see the fight go on, and at worst, maybe downright criminal. Maybe I'm going too far. I don't, I don't know. Am, am I overstating it, Kieran? What, what, what do you think? How horrifying is this? And should there still be some presumption of innocence for White if not for the British Boxing Board and, and other powers that be and how they handled this. So if I understand this correctly, this is simultaneously appalling and according to the rules that are being followed on the other side of the pond, the correct application of due process. But hmm. if that's correct, that process is terrible. <laughs> right. So um, if I understand correctly, the British Boxing Board of Control delegates its drug testing to the United Kingdom Anti-Doping, or UCAD, and it follows their rules, which is that there is a presumption of innocence, as, as you mentioned, um, even on a negative result from an A sample, even sometimes after the B sample test negative, until the whole appeals process has been gone through. Um, and I guess that kind of works for track and field. I mean, it sucks if you finish second to a drug cheat in the in the 100 meters and you miss the chance to get your gold medal at the ceremony and you think you're a silver medalist for two years and then you finally get it in the mail because the other... <laughs> I mean, that sucks. Right. But it's not dangerous. Right. Um, it's This is a whole other situation in bo boxing and that doesn't even necessarily speak okay so reportedly as you mentioned the the levels found in, in white system were 
you know, trace at best. But that's sort of only part of the issue here. One issue is allowing a fight to proceed when a fighter is tested positive. The other, and this is huge, is the complete and utter failure to inform the opponent. Yeah. Um, there was even, and this seems to be generally agreed, there was a hearing even on Saturday morning at which White made his case to a panel after which it was clear to fight. And Rivas knew nothing about it. And his team knew nothing about it. Apparently, Yvonne Michel, uh, his co-promoter, was told the day before that the fight may be off, but not given a reason. He just assumed that White had an injury or something. Nobody in the Rivas camp knew anything about any hearing or any drug. How can you have a hearing to decide if a fighter should be allowed to proceed without the other fighter being allowed to weigh in or even knowing what the heck was going on? Um, and wait, he says in his best late night infomercial voice, <laughs> there's more. Yes. Even before they knew all of this, Rivas' team entered the ring under protest right. because White was wearing gloves that were completely different to those that had been agreed upon at the rules meeting the day before. The excuse that was made, apparently, is that somehow an undercard boxer mistakenly took White's gloves and used them, which again gets to the whole process, uh, the whole question of what the hell's going on over there. Um, but again, even so, you inform the opponent. And, and what Rivas' team says is that they weren't even allowed to inspect the gloves because they were told by officials, oh, well, he's got them on now. It's too late to take them off. No, it isn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, so, I don't, so it just seems like a, a, a comedy of errors. But, of course, in boxing, errors are rarely comedic. Right. Um, uh, by and large, I think, the, you know, some of our British listeners may disagree and, and tell us otherwise, but I think British Boxing Border Controllers generally had a, decent reputation and not least because there's so much high level boxing over there but this does all seem pretty appalling um as you said white proclaimed his innocence well sort of he sort of said didn't he uh uh it, it, i'm i'm really upset at all the things that have been said without saying i'm innocent gov um <laughs> so i don't know maybe more will come out of this in due course but no this just seems like a horrible horrible mess yes uh it uh something something i was gonna say something doesn't smell right but not just something a, a lot of things here do not smell right uh yeah and and i i think you're absolutely right that the the process see above all else the process is very very right. bad right yeah. exactly so that story's been all over the media and social media of course here's one that's not at all well known hasn't i don't know many people have picked up on it, it was brought to my attention um by amy green who's a publicist for among others uh former middleweight champ kelly pavlik and for terry moss uh who's a terrific uh woman and runs a uh, boxing gym in, in atlanta georgia um so the other week Terry took 17 of her boxes on a break to the Florida Keys for a few days of, you know, relaxation on the water. And, you know, for many of them, it was the first time snorkeling or being on jet skis or really playing around in the water at all. And all was fine. It was a nice break, a really good thing to do for for her team. And then as they were driving back to their rental house, they were pulled over. Um, the officer who pulled the car over said that there was a busted tag light, which, according to Terry, later was seen, found to be working. Um as Terry said, uh, a quote, I spent many years in law enforcement, and honestly, I know racial profiling when I see it. What they saw was a car full of brown Latin boys with the windows down, talking and laughing with some music playing. One of her fighters, undefeated Abel Aparicio, was sitting in the back seat, but was anyway asked to provide a driving license or some ID, and he didn't have any. 
the office is called ICE, and Aparicio was sent to a processing center for deportation. That at least has been put on hold because Terry was able to marshal the resources to hire a lawyer and secure Abel's release on a $5,000 bond. Uh, he's 29 years old. He came to the U.S. when he was 13 and his brother was seven. He has an American wife. He has, an American, he has American children. He considers himself American. Um, he is now out on bond. He's fighting to stay in the country and to complete a visa application that um, he already started, uh, but he didn't have the money to finish. And having as an immigrant myself, as you may have noticed, um, <laughs> I, I can say that, yes, yeah, some of this stuff can be quite expensive. Uh, and what's interesting to me and why one of the reasons why we're really bringing this up here is when you look at the demographics in boxing, you spend time in boxing gyms, you look at the kind of kids who are coming up in the sport, I'll wager a lot of money that this will not be the only time a boxer gets caught up in all of this. Um, uh, as you and I were discussing this, whether to include this, there was a bit of kerfuffle over at ESPN involving Dan Libertard, which raised again the issue over where political opinions do and don't belong in sports. And, and Abel's case is a meeting of a boxing story, a human story, but yes, it's certainly a political story. Uh, and we're choosing to discuss it, even though very briefly. Um, what, is there anything you want to add to any of this, like the specifics here or just that general point sort of surrounding, you know, what Dan Lebatard was saying? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the, that, the, the, the conversation about whether it's okay to talk politics. My position is that, you know, there are your traditional political issues and positions, um, you know, vote for this guy or that guy, or I like Elizabeth Warren's education plan, or let's fix the tax code, etc. There's that stuff. And then there's basic issues of humanity and decency. And what we call politics has, yeah. in recent years, become more about things like that. If you think it's a debatable political issue about whether kids should be separated from parents or people should be kept in cages, I'm sorry, that's not liberal versus conservative. That's I care about humans who I don't know personally, or I don't care about those humans. So to me... If someone feels compelled to talk about a human issue on a sports show, they do risk turning off a percentage of their audience, uh, and maybe we're doing that right now, um, but it's much more of a gray area to me than straight up talk about traditional politics. Mm. Um, so with that in mind, and with this being a human story about a boxer, yep. I think this subject is 100% valid to address on this podcast, and... I shouldn't have to spell out whose side I'm on here. Um, again, if you care about treating humans like humans, uh, you can see that the way Abel is being treated is wrong. So yep. uh, I'll leave it at that, I think. Okay. Uh, and we'll move on now to the very worst news of the week. Uh, as everyone listening to this podcast surely knows, there were two deaths this week as a direct result of boxing, of punches being absorbed in the ring. We spoke last week about Maxim Dadashev, who was in a coma at the time of our recording following his 11th round stoppage loss. We got the tragic news on Tuesday morning that the 28-year-old Dadashev had succumbed to his injuries and died. And before we really even had much time to process that, on Thursday, Argentine junior welterweight Hugo Santian died five days after collapsing in the ring at the end of a 10-round draw in Buenos Aires. Santian was just 23. We said last week that it was a stretch to point fingers in the Dadashev case. Uh, Buddy McGirt stopped the fight at what seemed to be the right time. Maybe the medical response should have come sooner, but 
it seemed the ref and the corner did their job as best they could. The Santian case is a little tougher because this video made the rounds of the as the decision was being announced. He could be seen starting to lose consciousness. Uh, and, you know, just sort of watching that brings into question whether someone should have identified the problem sooner. Mm. This is the very darkest side of boxing. We all know it's part of the sport. But to have it happen twice in one week is exceedingly rare and is impossible for any fan to ignore. So, um, Kieran, has this led you to question your love for the sport of boxing at all this week? And do you see anything not being done that should be done to make situations like this even incrementally more avoidable? Um, honestly, there. Are t- I, th- I think I fell out of unconditional love with the sport of boxing a while back. Um, It's less of a loving relationship now than than, than a codependency, really. Um, (laughs) There are moments when I love it, and there are moments such as when we think about, you know, what happened to Dazuchev and and Santian, when I hate it. And there are long stretches, and I just look at it through the sort of dull, cynical eyes of someone who recognizes that, you know, he and boxing are kind of joined at the hip and... Might as well just both make the best of it, I guess. Um, what is there to say about this? It's obviously it's it's a reminder of the unique dangers in boxing. Yes, there are other sports and activities that have larger numbers of fatalities, and indeed, even as a percentage of those who, who participate, than than is the case in boxing. But you know, those are generally as a result of something going you know horribly wrong, of of falling off a horse and landing on your head, for example. Mm. Uh, in boxing, the deaths are kind of a function, an unintended function and an undesired function and a function that we all try to not happen of the fundamentals of the sport, which require participant A and participant B to punch each other in the head. And that's just not good for you. Um, and, you know, and we even celebrate the concussive violence of that by, by rewarding knockouts, for example. Um, and of course, it's not just deaths. We're focusing on, on deaths here for, for obvious reasons, but if you spend enough time around enough retired boxers yeah and you, there are other issues as well um you know i mean look it's 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 one reason why i'm this whole business is why i'm in the stop it one punch too soon camp but a that doesn't mitigate against the long term cumulative damage and b often the fights that result in very serious injury or death are not actually horrendously one-sided. They're the ones where one guy is losing and taking too many punches, but still showing enough to stay in it. Yeah. Um, I haven't been ringside for for a ring death. I don't know if you have, but I have not. No. Um, yeah. yeah, fortunately here too. But I was ringside for the fight that severely damaged Magomed Abdusalamov in New York a few years ago. Mm. And yes, for the last round or two, I thought, you know what? Yeah, this fight probably ought to be stopped. But I wasn't screaming at the referee the way that I have been at times. You know, I thought, yeah, this could probably be stopped. I didn't think it was a, a, a horrendous battering that was at putting the guy at, at risk. And that's the danger. And I think that's certainly what happened a little bit with Dadashev here. Um, yeah, there are things we can do incrementally, as, as you mentioned, you know, perhaps being OK with slightly early stoppages. But, you know, reducing gym wars because they take a lot out of a fighter and reduce their resistance. And so you've got to sort of get at the sort of the culture of the sport there to some extent. Um Really looking at things like weigh-ins, at how much fighters dehydrate 
yeah. and punish their bodies uh, to make way. Um, that's that's an ongoing issue that that I think there there are many different opinions on that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, this is a sport that actively requires participants to damage each other's brains, ideally in just a short term. I mean, being knocked out is suffering a concussion, and that is a short-term brain injury. And the, the more of those that you suffer, the worse that it is. Um, we are all – I'm going to misquote it, so I won't try, but Nigel Collins did a very good tweet, I thought, that he was basically, yeah, look, look we are all complicit in this, and it's up to us to decide how we feel about this and mm-hmm. how comfortable we are with it. And then there's the flip side, and – I thought the timing of it was really interesting that it was really there in evidence when Brian Custer sat down with Javante Davis. Yes. Yeah. For an, right. You know, where I, I'm going I, I know where exactly where you're going. I was going to bring yeah. this up if you didn't. Yeah, go ahead. And it's, it's, it's available on, on the Showtime boxing and Showtime sports digital channels and it aired as part of the broadcast on Saturday. And if you missed it, Javante basically said he's the only one of the kids he ran with who's still alive. And not only is he still alive, he's very rich. And there probably wasn't any other very obvious legal option, at least available to achieve both of those things, right. being alive and being rich. So, you know, people who go into boxing, it's not, well, do I pursue this arts degree at Middlebury College or am I a professional fighter? It's often saving them from yes. an early grave. And that is what we all sort of have to deal with there was one thing i'll hand it over to you i'm sure you also have some thoughts on this but i did want to say i did try to reach out to buddy mcgurt uh, this weekend but wasn't able to get a hold of him but i did want to share so that we don't forget maxim Dadashev and, and and you know the person that he was um uh buddy posted on instagram there's a special bond between a trainer and a fighter and i'm honored to have shared that with max max showed the world the true heart of a fighter and never gave up i send my, I send my condolences to the family and fans of max we lost a great man father and champion and i spoke with buddy's publicist rachel charles uh who told me that uh, she said that buddy had said to her that not only was maxim exceptionally focused and hardworking, he said that if there was one kid that he ever wanted to train for the rest of his life it was maxim dadashev yeah i mean it's just it's just so sad when you you know step back and look at it from a human perspective and obviously we did not know either of these fighters who died, but, uh, you know, you put yourself in the, the shoes of the people who, who, who really loved them and cared about them. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just tragic. Um, in terms of backing up to the question of what can be done to, to minimize this, I, I don't know that these cases really yeah. were, were shining examples of, Oh, you got to fix this or you got to fix that. Uh, there was talk, but it's unconfirmed uh, about, Santian having been on suspension in one country mm-hmm. because of his previous fight and then fighting in another country where he wasn't suspended. Whether that did or didn't happen here, that does happen. And yep. that shit's just got to stop. There there yep. has to be one central global database of all fighters. And if they're suspended until a certain date in one place, they're suspended everywhere until that date. And managers and promoters have to stop being scumbags about that sort of thing. I know everyone wants a paycheck, but it's just not worth it. Um, All that being said, um, I'm I'm sure I have a theoretical potential breaking point in terms of my love of boxing, but I didn't come that close to it this week. I I just, I went through all these internal conflicts a long time ago and, Mm. and I made the necessary rationalizations. The main one being 
what you just said about Javante Davis, that boxing does save more lives than it ends. That's that's the kind of thing that I keep reminding myself of. But I don't blame anyone who decides they can't watch boxing anymore. Um, But for me personally, uh, that ship has kind of sailed, I think. I'm okay with it. I accept that this is part of the sport and, you know, you can make it safer. You can't make it safe. Uh, And I've long since come to terms with that. Yeah. Okay. uh, One quick note before you uh, do the sign off, Kieran. Uh, The mood is already somber. Um, I'm going to add to that just a bit. Uh, I had a death in the family this week. My great uncle Irv, my dad's uncle, died on Thursday morning at the age of 97. Uh, Wow. This is no tragedy, of course. 97. He lived a good, long life, and he was healthy well into his 90s. Uh, He was with it mentally right up to the very end. Um, Part of the reason I'm bringing him up here on the podcast is that my uncle Irv was a huge boxing fan. Uh, When I first got my job at Ring Magazine in 1997, we started bonding on another level beyond just standard Hmm. great uncle and great nephew stuff. We had boxing to talk about because this is someone who actually listened to Joe Lewis beat Max Schmeling on the radio live and could tell you all about it. Uh, He knew all the fighters from the thirties through the two thousands. He did a little boxing in the army himself in the forties and was, uh, I I just found this out uh, at his funeral or after his funeral, as we were gathering with family that he was awarded five medals of honor during, during the war. Um, and uh, in his 70s and 80s, uh, when he still lived in the area, he, he moved to Florida about five years ago. But when he still lived in Philly, he used to come over for all the pay-per-view fights and, and watch them at my house or my parents' house. Uh, my Uncle Irv was, was a great guy and a huge boxing fan. And I just want to dedicate this episode of the podcast to him. He's missed already in our family. And on behalf of the whole boxing community, we dedicate this show to Maxim Dadashev and Hugo Santiana as well, and we send our thoughts out to their families. Indeed. Uncle Irv sounds like he was a pretty cool guy. He was. Yep. Awesome. All right. Uh, well said. That will do it for this edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Hopefully, the next one will be at least a little bit more upbeat. Um, yeah. We're not exactly sure what next week's episode will entail. Uh, we are at the start of a fairly slow stretch in terms of major fights. Uh, So who knows? Perhaps I'll have an interview guest. It would also be an ideal time to dip into the mailbag. So send your most interesting questions and your hottest takes on Twitter. Um, Possibly in response to some of the stuff we've talked about this week, (laughs) I shouldn't be surprised. Right. Uh, Send them with the hashtag AskShowPod, A-S-K-S-H-O-P-O-D, and we will look to respond to your tweet on the air. Until next time, thanks for listening.